Amen. Will you pray with me? God of love and light, you are our mighty God, our healer and redeemer, and there is none like you. We are thankful for the gift of this day and this moment. Thank you for calling each of us into your presence, and we open our hearts to you now. We pray for those around us, Lord, around the world, seen and unseen, who are living in danger and fear due to the conflict, corruption, and oppression. We ask for your hope and light to overpower their despair and darkness. We pray for those in need of food, shelter, and safety. And we pray for helpers who can provide compassion and care for their physical, spiritual, and relational needs. And Lord, today we want to remember the tragic events of September 11th, 20 years ago. We pray for the many people who experienced incredible trauma and loss. As a nation and a world, we went through that together, and we still continue to mourn with those who mourn. We pray for your comfort and continued healing. We turn to you, Lord, this time, in this time of fires, storms, drought, and this pandemic. We pray for strength and protection for the essential and frontline workers. We thank you for them. During this difficult and uncertain time, may we not become bitter, numb, or paralyzed in fear, and instead, may we draw near to you. Fill us with your hope and your peace. The circumstance and events of our lives are constantly changing, and we realize more than ever there is nothing that's certain, but we know that you are constant. Nothing can separate us from your love, and your love never fails. We lift up those who are here today, Lord, who are sick or struggling. We lift up those who are afraid or hurt or alone. And our hearts break with those who are grieving the loss of someone they love, a close family member or a friend. And we ask for your comfort and a deep sense of your love and care for them. Give us eyes to see how we can bring your light, your hope, your love, and grace to those around us. And Heavenly Father, we've come to see Jesus today. So we pray for Sean as he brings your word to us. May your spirit bring understanding and transformation in our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. And as Denise said, we do have a dramatic performance for you of the first seven verses of John 9. So, as Jesus and his disciples were walking along the road, they passed by a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming where no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground <laughs> and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. 
and said to him, once he was all anointed, and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So with a little help from a disciple, he went, and he washed, and he came back, and he said, He can see. (laughs) Thank you, youth students. You would take a bow and exit. (laughs) Yes, the blind man needs his glasses still. And so we invite Sean up to share with us more about this amazing miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, thank you, Becca and friends. Uh, we did that skit at River Camp this year, so it was so fun. Um, so, good morning. How are your eyes this morning? Do they see clearly, or are they cloudy? Have they been touched by the grace and truth of Jesus? As John writes this story, uh, what we see is chapter nine of his gospel, I think he's asking each one of us, how are your eyes? Hey readers, Jesus smeared a mud pie on this man's eyes, but how are your eyes? Are you seeing Jesus clearly or not? You know, the most important question in life is, who is Jesus? How do you answer that question this morning? Well, let's pray. Well, Father, as we come to you this morning, as we come to this amazing text, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Through your spirit, will you put mud on our hearts that we may see you more clearly In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we do enter back into our studies in the Gospel of John today, and our text is another blind man text. In some ways, this will be an addendum to what Eugene spoke on last week. But if you remember, uh, we, I know you don't, but we we finished John back in March, um, chapter 8. And if you remember, chapters seven and eight of John are set during the Feast of Tabernacles, that um, most joyous time of the entire year, when thousands of pilgrims would, would descend, would flood Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, to remember what God had done in the past and renew hope for what he would do in the future. And, and to remind them of what he had done in the past, they all would build huts, and they would live in a hut throughout the entire week. But then also, they would celebrate three key rituals. They would celebrate uh, a water ritual every morning, they would celebrate a light ritual every night, and then throughout the feast, they would celebrate the presence of God um, with this theological affirmation of I am. So that would be throughout the liturgy for the entire week. 
Now at this particular feast recorded in John, Jesus himself provides the hope for the future as he speaks into each one of these rituals. He claims to be the source and provider of living water. He claims to be the light of the world, a claim we will hear again today. And he claims to be I am, the very presence of God. Before Abraham was, I am, is what he audaciously claims. Indeed, no one ever spoke the way Jesus speaks. And now we come to chapter nine. One of the most brilliantly told scenes in the entire Bible. Some people have said, this is the most well-crafted of all the gospel stories. And now we don't know exactly when this happens, but it most likely happens right after the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you into the text this morning, John 9, beginning in verse 1. Uh, the skit was verses 1 to 7. So I'm not going to reread those, those verses, but the, at least the first four verses will be up behind me. So at some point, after Jesus finished teaching in the temple, he saw a blind man. Now in our text today, to see and to have sight are key words, used 13 times in this whole chapter. The word blind is also used 13 times in this chapter. Now in this gospel especially, to see or to not see, to be blind, typically means more than just physical sight. These words correspond to belief and unbelief. So eyesight is synonymous with the heart. So when I ask, how are your eyes this morning, I could ask, how is your heart this morning? Jesus sees a blind man. Now, as is typical in the Gospels, Jesus always sees hurting people. It's simply his hallmark. In almost any situation, Jesus most quickly notices the people hurting the most. And we've seen this several times in this Gospel already, with the woman at the well, with the lame man, with the woman caught in adultery, and now a blind man. It's a comforting thought, isn't it? If you're here today and you're hurting, you can be sure the risen Jesus sees you. He doesn't pass you by. He doesn't look the other way. This is a God that sees us. So Jesus sees this blind man. Now we need to understand blindness in those days. It was a huge problem in the ancient world. It was, um, there were no treatments and the unsanitary conditions greatly increased the risks of eye disease. Plus, there were no talking crosswalks and there was no braille. So, if you were blind in that time, it meant utter hopelessness. And the man Jesus encounters has been blind since birth. 
This man has lived in hopeless darkness his entire life. Now, I was working in the yard this week, and I saw a hummingbird. And I love hummingbirds. They fill me with wonder, especially when they come up to you, like right in your face, and say, beat it. This is my territory, right? Um, this blind man had never seen a hummingbird. He had never seen a flower. He had never seen a sunrise or a sunset. He had never seen his mom or his dad. Ever since he was a boy, his mom would lead him around the house and he would probably feel her face. He would probably feel a tear here or there. But he never saw her face. And now that he was a grown man, his only hope would have been begging So he's sitting outside of the temple, hopeless and begging. And his situation raises an interesting question from the disciples. Who sinned, Jesus? Hey, Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents? Isn't that an interesting response to a hopeless beggar? Instead of beginning with compassion, they begin with judgment. Who sinned? And then I realize, how often have I done the same thing? I see a homeless person on the streets and I immediately go to judgment. I don't start with compassion. My eyes are very dirty. Now, to give the benefit of the doubt to the disciples, perhaps they raised this question because of what happened back in chapter 5 with the lame man. There are several similarities and differences between these two stories, and I'll allude to them throughout the morning. Even if you don't remember that story, I think it's good to hear the, the comparisons because this blind man comes out looking pretty remarkable through this story. And there in chapter five, after Jesus heals the the lame man, he makes a point to tell that man, make sure you don't sin anymore. He will make no, no point like that in this story. But the disciples' questions, though, Their question is the classic poor articulation of the problem of suffering. They seem to think, as with many people, that suffering must come directly from sin. And indeed, sometimes suffering can be the direct result of sin. We face the consequences of our choices and foolish choices can result in suffering. But not all suffering is a direct result of sin. We know that from experience. But we also could point to the story of Job in the Old Testament. From Job's perspective, there simply was no explanation for suffering. It was a mystery. 
And we learn that we need to be very careful to not make judgments connecting sin and suffering. If you know the book of Job, you'll know that Job's friends tried to make that connection throughout the book. And you know what? Job's friends were true friends when they stopped talking. When they were just present with Job, that's when they were true friends. It's a good thing for us to remember. Well, here in John 9, Jesus simply dismisses the disciples' question. The reason for the suffering just isn't important. It's simply not important. What is important? Doing the work of God now. Doing the work of God now in the midst of the suffering. Jesus says, night is coming when the work will cease. Probably alluding to his death or our death. Either way, his words provide a sense of urgency to get to work in the midst of suffering. What counts is showing compassion now in the midst of suffering. And I take Jesus' words here to be an invitation to all of us, all of his followers, to begin reflecting his light into this dark world now by getting to work. In Matthew, Jesus calls his followers the light of the world. Jesus is the true light of the world, but he invites us to reflect his light into the world through good works. Paul says in Ephesians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here at PBCC, we have a family value called participating in God's work, which essentially means we join him where he is working, reflecting his light. But you know, it, it begins by seeing how he sees. That's where it begins. How are your eyes this morning? Too often I find my eyes focused on myself in self-centeredness, self-absorption, and pride. I'm busy. Busy with my own agenda. Focused on my own rights. Preoccupied with my own wants, and I'm too busy navel gazing to see how he sees. And I miss all the hurting people that are around me. I miss out on participating in God's work of showing compassion. This is one of the reasons we as a church are beginning this RSCP ministry. It's so that we, that it will help us see how he sees. Because we have to see first 
before we can offer compassion. Compassion in many ways depends on where we set our gaze. So I did this also with the youth at River Camp, and it works for all of us as well. I had them draw four circles. Um, one person, that's my daughter's, she couldn't follow directions, she, drove, she, <laughs> she drew five circles. Um, home, neighborhood, work, and play. Then I had them draw you know, their stick figure themselves in each circle. And I told them, God has intentionally placed them in each circle to see how he sees and to join him in his work. See, the internet tries to convince us that place doesn't matter, but it does. Place matters. Jesus, the word, became flesh in a particular time at a particular place. God has intentionally placed each one of us in these circles, within a family, within a neighborhood, within a workplace, within a play place, to see how he sees and to offer compassion the way he offers compassion, to join him in his work. Well, in our text, Jesus compassionately gets to work himself. In theology, this is called grace. The man will eventually see the truth, but it begins with grace. And as we've seen in John, Jesus' first action doesn't seem to help the situation. He makes a mud pie and puts it on the man's eyes. Here's a new spiritual gift rubbing mud pies onto people's eyes using your own spit. <laughs> he then commands the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. We've seen this pool already. Uh, this is the source of water for the tabernacle's feast. Jesus, not the pool, is the source and provider of living Water. So John's editorial comment that Siloam means sent confirms this. How? Because throughout this gospel, Jesus has been described as the one sent from God. So this man has been told to go and wash in the pool of sent by the sent one. The man obeys. Throughout church history, it's been noted this blind man is concerned with only a few things, speaking the truth honestly and obeying what Jesus says. He doesn't even question Jesus. He simply goes to the pool and comes back seeing. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine walking to the pool with the blind man, and he walks faster and faster. Could this really work? He washes the mud off and he comes up and he sees my goodness. And you can imagine him running home, throwing the door open, mom, I can see. 
And of course, with all the commotion, everyone in the community begins to question the events. So John devotes the rest of the chapter to the community's investigation of the miracle. And it is one of the most brilliantly told stories in scripture. We're gonna move through the verses fairly quickly. I'll make a few comments along the way, but I want you to just enjoy the conversation. Verse eight. The neighbors and those who had had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, no, I'm the man, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, well, I don't know. Absolute confusion, absolute hilarity. Is it him? Can't be. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Could it be that his neighbors never saw him? Could it be that he was simply disposable in their sight? So they paid no attention. They looked the other way. They never really saw him. Meanwhile, the man who always tells the truth, even if it will hurt him, simply says, I'm the man. And then he explains the truth of what happened. Now, if we compare this man to the lame man in chapter five, the man, this man learned Jesus' name immediately, unlike the lame man. Well, the neighbors don't believe him, so they take him to the Pharisees. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. So the Pharisees, the theological leaders of the day now questioned the man. But they were more concerned about the Sabbath and the violation of the Sabbath than about the healing, which is very similar to chapter five. Here, though, Jesus made mud, which is work, and therefore forbidden on the Sabbath. And because he made mud on the Sabbath, he can't be from God, they say. He must be a sinner. Meanwhile, the healed man tells the truth carefully, seemingly protecting Jesus' so-called work, which is unlike the lame man in chapter 5. And this man concludes simply but courageously calling Jesus a prophet. So now we go to the parents, verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. 
until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And then John gives this editorial comment. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So the incredulous Pharisees now badger the witnesses. The parents know he is their son, but they deflect many of the questions out of fear of expulsion from the synagogue. Sadly, they separate themselves from their son. But now the Pharisees call the man back for interrogation. And this uneducated beggar turns the tables on the Pharisees. This is probably, this next part is probably the best part of the entire dialogue. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, say what we want you to say. The man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So the leaders turned to the blind man a second time. They began by accusing Jesus of being a sinner. The healed man can't speak to Jesus' sinfulness, but he can speak to the miracle. He knows he was blind, and now he sees. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. If you're a follower of Christ and you, never, and you don't know what to say, just tell your story like this man. As I get older, I realize I don't know much at all. (laughs) But this one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Well, then exasperated and a bit sarcastically, the healed man boldly accuses the Pharisees of wanting to hear the story again because they want to become his disciples. As he has had his ears restored, maybe they need their ears re- Did I say that right? As he has had his eyes restored, maybe they need their ears restored. 
At this point, the Pharisees are done with him. They're just done with him. But the courageous man then gives a free theology lesson to the master of theologians. The only explanation for him seeing is God. And if God doesn't listen to sinners, then Jesus is no sinner. The Pharisees will have none of it. And they accuse the man of being born in sin. We have ended where we started. The Pharisees are repeating that same poor articulation of suffering that the disciples had stated earlier. Then they cast the healed man out of the synagogue. Jesus said something about this in his Beatitudes. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. This healed man's reward is great in heaven. And so is yours when people revile you on account of Jesus. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That's the end of the text. What we see here is the effect of light. Light polarizes. Light divides. Moths are drawn to the light. They're drawn to greater and greater light. Creepy crawlies run from the light. They run into deeper and deeper darkness. Light polarizes. So the Pharisees, with the credentials and training, with all of their credentials, all of their training, should see. But they fall into deeper and deeper darkness. As a blind patient who is convinced he does see and sees quite well is difficult for any doctor to treat, so the Pharisees' pride blinds them. They can't deny the power Jesus has, but they deny that the power is from God. We know. We just know he must be a sinner. That's their repeated mantra throughout this text. It's actually their repeated mantra throughout the book of John. They just know. Their pride blinds them. He can't be from God. They refuse 
to come and see. And the end for them is condemnable blindness. On the other hand, the healed man has been drawn into greater and greater light. Indeed, Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners, those who know they can't make it on their own. Jesus also spoke of them in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, make me poor in spirit. After Jesus hears of the man's expulsion, he searches for and finds and questions the man about his faith. And the man who began in physical and spiritual darkness reveals his movement fully into the light. He initially called Jesus a man. Then he called him a prophet. Then a man of God. And finally, he confesses to Jesus being the son of man. As with the blind man from Mark, which Eugene spoke on last week, this blind man takes some time to come to the truth. And now, fully in the light, he falls at Jesus' feet in worship. The man can now truly see. The eyes of his heart have been opened. Well, at this time, I want to invite the band back up here as I close. How are your eyes this morning? Have they been touched by the grace and truth of Jesus? Are you seeing Jesus clearly? Are you seeing others clearly? The journey of faith is a movement out of darkness and into light. It is a movement out of self-focus and self-absorption into God-focus and others-focus. This man born blind is representative of all of us. We are all spiritually blind from birth and what we need is the touch of Jesus, the light of the world to open the eyes of our heart to see him clearly and to see others clearly. And so we pray, Jesus, will you put mud on our hearts so that we will see you more clearly. This is our only hope. And I want to close this morning with a, a poem. This is a poem written by Kelly Miller. Kelly was supposed to be on the worship team today, but she's under the weather. And she wrote this poem um, in response to these two blind man texts. The poem is called, I See You. Here's what she says. I wish that you could see yourself just as I see you. I wish that you could be yourself wholly free and true. Keep stepping from the shadows into the warmth of light. When a new day dawns, it leaves behind the dark of night. Let my rays of sunshine fill your heart 
with truth and hope. Let your eyes be open to see that you are loved just the way you are. I see all the parts of you that have been withdrawn. I see the secrecy that's held you for so long. I see the shame that binds your heart, that keeps you far from me. I see the fear that holds you back, lies that will not let you be. I see you try to run away even when I am near. I see you right now. I am looking at you here just the way you are. Can I touch you? Will you let me touch your eyes? Can you see me? Look into my loving eyes. You may think you know your story, but there's a chapter left to write. Will you open up the pages for grace to touch your sight? You were born in darkness, but can live in the light of day when you see the one who sees you. Amen. Now receive this benediction from Ephesians. May your eyes be focused and clear so that you can see exactly who he is and what he is calling you to do. And you can see clearly the immensity of this glorious way of life that he has for you. Amen. Go in peace.